After the relative crime watershed of World War I, the 20th century entered the age of sex crime. Perhaps predictably, the country where this first became apparent was Germany, where the miseries and deprivation of hyperinflation and food shortage made their maximum impact. Hanover, an elegant municipality in the center of Lower Saxony, was one of the city's most affected, and it was in this sleepy hollow that Fritz Harman committed one of the most extraordinary series of crimes in modern times. On the 17th of May, 1924, some children playing at the edge of a river near the Herrenhausen Castle found a human skull, and on May 29th, another washed up on the riverbank. The town was sent into a frenzy on the 13th of June, when two more skulls were found embedded in the river's sediment. An autopsy proved that the first two crania to be that of young people between ages 18 and 20, and the last skull found from a boy of approximately 12. In all cases, a sharp instrument had been used to separate the skulls from the torso, and the flesh had been entirely removed. It was initially thought that the human remains originated from the Anatomical Institute in Göttingen, or that they'd been flung into the river by grave robbers fleeing from capture. Yet these theories remained unproven, and the mystery gained further publicity when boys playing on a marshland unearthed a sack containing human bones. It had become impossible for the authorities to keep these grisly finds a secret, and, whilst young boys continued to be reported missing, the number in 1923 grew to almost 600, the Hanoverian population was gripped by terror. The investigation highlighted that those missing were mostly aged between 14 and 18, and rumors were circulating that human flesh had been on sale at the public market. On Whit Sunday in 1924, hundreds of people left Hanover and descended on the small paths and bridges of the old town where they started searching for human remains. The vastness of this expedition was unprecedented in German criminal history and was spurred on primarily by the talk of a werewolf or man-eater at large. After a multitude of bones had been discovered, the city's central river lane was dammed and inspected by policemen and municipal workers. The fines were horrific. More than 500 parts of corpses were detected, proved later to be the remains of at least 22 people. Approximately one half had been in the water for some time, and the joints of many of the fresh bones had smoothly cut surfaces. Every thief and sexual deviant in Hanover was questioned, and, through dogged detective work and a series of strange coincidences, a suspect by the name of Frederick Fritz Harman was taken to the court prison. The man was already known to the police as both a dealer in clothing and meat and to the criminal investigation department due to his publicly homosexual status. His appearance and mannerisms in the ultra-reserved days of interwar Germany redefined the conventional impression of murder and murderers. Harman was certainly sympathetic in appearance, a simple man with a friendly, open expression and a courteous nature. Of average height, broad and well-built, he had a rough, full-moon face and neat, cheerful eyes. His features were generally small and as unprepossessing as the rest of his appearance, the only notability a well-groomed, light-brown mustache. Fritz's expression closed up completely as soon as the atmosphere became embarrassing, and investigating officers soon realized that their suspect was a man of deep contrast. At times cagey and calculating, yet also talkative and hyperactive, desperately seeking sympathy and attention. His soft white hands moved nervously, plucking and pulling constantly at his long fingers. Whilst Hartman's body was strong and coarse, it was also slightly feminine, and his speech was like the querulous voice of an old woman. 
The killer's almost constant defensiveness and embarrassment were reflected in his automatisms and stereotypes, the wiggling of his behind, the licking of his lips, even the constant blinking of his eyes. Harmon loved feminine pastimes, such as baking and cooking, but would smoke strong cigars at the same time. Although his appearance was, as the Hanover police stated, far from evil, Fritz Harmon entered the record books as Germany's most prolific killer. Harmon had begun his crime rampage in September 1918, a time in which Germany was suffering economic deprivation and severe food shortages. A young runaway by the name of Friedel Roth disappeared from home on the 25th, writing to his mother only to say that he would not return home until she was nice again. Various friends of the boy were forthcoming with information and eventually led the police to number 27 Sellerstrasse, the home of a man they claimed had seduced Friedel. A detective surprised one Fritz Harmon in bed with a young boy, and he was sentenced to nine months imprisonment for seducing the juvenile. Unbelievably, the rooms were not searched, and upon interrogation five years later, Harmon confessed that the murdered boy's head was stuffed behind the stove wrapped in newspaper. The murderer's story was to take a dramatic turn in late 1919, when he met young Hans Granz at a Hanover railway station. A petty thief, Hans had run away from home and now earned his living selling old clothes at the station. The young boy approached the openly homosexual Harmon with the purpose of prostituting himself for money. Remarkably, a friendship soon developed, and Granz began living with the old man, where a bond of madness and spiritual parasitism developed. The relationship was more than sexual, and the insane ideas that surfaced in Harmon's conscience always involved his young housemate. Having carefully avoided his jail sentence throughout 1919, Harmon served his penance from March until December 1920. Granz thieved his way around Germany during this time, and upon reunion at Christmas 1920, there followed a period of uninterrupted bliss until August 1921. The two thieves appeared as well-dressed, decent gentlemen and earned respect amongst the local people. Needless to say, however, the two men had more illicit intentions and plied their trade by begging or stealing laundry and selling it to the public. In early 1922, the two men moved to number 8 Neustrasse in the heart of the so-called haunted area. Harmon was earning a good income. The thieving was accompanied by social security payments. He had been declared an invalid and therefore unable to work, and also his newfound role as a police informer. Harmon double-crossed everybody and became a custodian of the law and an information office for all criminal matters. Amazingly, the clothes that Harmon passed around Hanover earned him the reputation as a benefactor of the homeless. His obvious homosexuality further hushed up any theories people may have had as to the origin of the garments. In February 1923, Harmon returned to his murderous past. The killer detained two youths at Hanover Station on the pretense that he was an officer inspecting the waiting rooms. The less attractive lad was sent away, and Fritz Frankie accompanied the phony officer home. Harmon later claimed that Granz had turned up unexpectedly whilst the corpse of Frankie was still in the room. Shocked, he simply stared at Harmon and said, When shall I come back again? The murders now gained pace, and in the following nine months, twelve more young men's lives were taken. In almost every scenario, the victim was met at the train station and offered accommodation or work, or apprehended on the pretense that his abductor was a police officer. This guise was used so often that on one occasion, after a youth welfare worker had asked the guard as to whether Harmon was employed in the same capacity, the station official replied, No, he's a detective. Once in the newest Strasse room, the boy would be killed, 
according to Harmon, by biting through his windpipe. Always with a view to his commercial instincts, the body would then be dismembered and the clothes and meat sold through the usual channels for smuggled goods. The useless portions were thrown into the river lane. One year later, when the items confiscated from the killer were on public display, the victims' families discovered a wealth of personal artifacts, many kept as souvenirs, and the remainder sold on through Harmon's impressive distribution network. On each occasion, there was normally an array of witnesses who had seen the recognizable Harmon, and often grands, approach and leave with the stranger. Such was the respect that the two men had now earned for themselves, however, that no incident was ever reported. On one such circumstance, Harmon even had the audacity to reply to an announcement in the paper offering a reward for information. He appeared at the family door under the guise of a criminologist, yet was said to have spent most of his time laughing hysterically. The murders continued unabated throughout early 1924, Harmon honing his remarkable knack of spotting disillusioned young tearaways at the station and then removing them casually into the night. Due to the nature of the victims, angry or estranged parents and friends often took a while to even report the disappearance. By then, the clothing and meat of the victims had been speedily distributed around Hanover and were practically untraceable. Without that sort of hard evidence, the police were at a virtual dead end, although there were some particularly close calls. On one such occasion, a portion of the trader's meat was taken to the police because the buyer thought it was human flesh. The police analyst unequivocally pronounced it pork. The disappearance of Eric de Vries on the 14th of June, 1924, signaled the end of the killer's reign. In classic fashion, it was an offer of cigarettes at Hanover Station that tempted the young lad to join the friendly stranger in his room. It was estimated at this time that the fugitive had murdered around 27 boys in less than 16 months, an average of almost two a month. Despite the enormous manhunt now in operation, the killer had still not been apprehended and Hanover was at the point of public outcry. By late June of 1924, sheer terror had gripped the city and the werewolf was still on the loose. Throughout the panic that engulfed Hanover in 1924, Fritz Harmon remained a definite suspect. Along with every other local sex offender, he was investigated repeatedly during May and June, yet no conclusive evidence could be found. Meanwhile, press announcements appeared, giving details of the skulls in the hope of obtaining clues from the general public. The number of skulls and corpses still being discovered was generating a nationwide furor and a general lack of confidence in the German police force. With the pressure mounting, the following course of action was agreed upon. As Harman already knew the town officials, two young policemen would arrive from Berlin at Hanover train station, pretending to be homeless and looking for a place to stay. They would then focus on the suspect's activities and hope to catch him in the act. Once again, however, the killer's incredible luck conspired against them as Fritz was found arguing with 15-year-old Karl Fromm, a boy who had spent several days at Harmon's apartment. Fromm was being particularly cheeky and supercilious on this evening, and, amazingly, Harmon had the audacity to report him to the railway police, claiming that he was traveling on false papers. Once at the police station, though, Fromm turned the tables on the older man by accusing him of sexual harassment during his stay. Coincidentally, a member of the vice squad was at the station at this time, and... In the knowledge that the police were hoping to arrest Harmon, the officer decided to apprehend the suspect immediately. Before any unnecessary suspicions could be aroused, Harmon was taken to prison on the morning of the 23rd of June. The killer later claimed that he had only arranged to have Frum taken into custody because he knew he was going to murder the boy 
and was afraid he would not be able to resist the urge for much longer. If this statement is to be believed, here was the first time that Harmon's actions were motivated by any moral scruples, and these alleged feelings of guilt were to prove his downfall. Yet the case was not nearly as clear-cut as the substantial evidence would imply. Several hundred items of clothing found in Harmon's room or confiscated from his acquaintances were collected and identified as the property of the missing children. But there is no evidence to declare that he had been responsible for even one of the deaths. Harmon inevitably claimed that the property in his possession was due to his business of trading and dealing in used clothes. He admitted having relations with some of the children, yet denied any knowledge of the victim's current whereabouts and gave plausible explanations for the traces of blood present in the garments. The suspect once again displayed considerable skill at avoiding taxing questions and prolonging the Inquisition. Harmon was an astute man and, understanding the rather secretive nature of homosexuality at the time, subsequently knew it would be difficult for the police to obtain incriminating evidence from his victims and their families. One of these victims was a boy named Robert Witzel, whose parents had continually besieged the police since their son's disappearance on April 26, 1924. When the first skulls were found later that year, Herr Witzel was persuaded to examine the evidence in order to confirm that his son's irregular jawbone was one of the discovered crania. All that was known at this time was that Robert had visited the local circus on the night of his disappearance with his best friend, the sly and girlish Fritz Kallmeier. Fritz, silent throughout the entire ordeal, would only say that the boys had traveled to the circus with a police official from the railway station, who subsequently procured him for homosexual society gentlemen. Items of Witzel's clothing were found in the killer's apartment, yet Harmon would still not confess. The breakthrough came when a couple walked into the police station and passed the Witzel family who sat outside the chief commissioner's office. Frau Witzel immediately recognized the man's jacket and asked as to where he had obtained the garment. The man admitted that he had acquired the coat from Harmon and even provided an identification card in the trousers bearing the name Witzel. The lady accompanying him was Frau Engel, Harmon's landlady, who happened to be in the police station making inquiries concerning her tenant's military pension. An enormous stroke of luck in addition to the fabric evidence and, more importantly, one which finally convinced Harmon to concede defeat. The prisoner was subsequently subjected to incessant and severe questioning before being given relief and encouragement commensurate with the unburdening of the conscience. After seven days of maniacal and emotional rages, Harmon broke down and asked for the superintendent and examining magistrate, to whom he would make a full confession. The killer then took the court officials on a murder tour of Hanover. They were shown parts of corpses hidden in bushes, bones dredged from a lake, and skeletons concealed around the city. Inevitably, more and more people stepped forward who obtained clothing or meat from either Harmon or Granz, and the evidence snowballed. Harmon's character also changed during this period. He now opened up to the investigating authorities and displayed the helpful, childish, and often sarcastic side to his nature. Only if confronted by the parents of his victims, or if discussing the act of decapitation would the killer withdraw himself again. The general impression was that he felt relieved of a terrible burden by being able to discuss the darkness and fear of his abnormal sex life. There is also a distinct degree of pride in having duped mankind, of whom Harmon always spoke badly. As a result of the information secured, Hans Granz was arrested on the 8th of July, and the two men met on several occasions before their trials began. At these times, Harmon was always troubled, 
whereas Granz appeared indifferent to the entire affair. Harman remained in the prison until the 16th of August, before being sent to nearby Göttingen for psychiatric examination. The trial, unprecedented in German judicial history, contained 60 volumes of files and opened on the 4th of December 1924. The trial was conducted at the Hanover Assizes and lasted 14 days with almost 200 witnesses. The much-publicized opening decree stated that Fritz Harman was accused of killing 27 persons intentionally and deliberately from September 1918 to June 1924. Harman insisted on conducting his own defense and remained entirely nonchalant throughout the trial, at one point complaining that there were too many women in the courtroom. He was allowed remarkable freedom and was notably immature and irresponsible, frequently interrupting the proceedings. At one stage, he demanded indignantly why there were so many women in the court. The judge answered apologetically that he had no power to keep them out. On one occasion, when a mother became too distraught to give evidence about her son with clarity, Hartman got bored and asked to be allowed to smoke a cigar. Permission was immediately granted. Nonetheless, the murderer's naive combination of fiction and fact was generally agreed as refreshing in contrast to the legal speak of the jurists and the confused hypocrisy of the authorities. To the journalists, he once said reproachfully, You are not to lie. We know you are all liars. And to the jury, Keep it short. I want to spend Christmas in heaven with Mother. Harmon was constantly amused by the proceedings and, remarkably, even brought a smile from the public on more than one occasion. In contrast, Hans Granz, accused in two cases of instigating murder, appeared as a tough and unbreakable character. The jury subsequently branded him as the more dangerous, yet the more innocent, of the two. Granz was entirely focused on self-preservation, an attitude that was to prove his downfall as Harmon became concentrated on his devilish desire for revenge to take the one he loved the most with him to the dark land. Hence, Fritz formed incredible and completely inaccurate accusations of murder against his partner that the court wholeheartedly believed. Once he had achieved his aim of not going to death alone, Harmon quieted down and let Granz do the talking. Inevitably, though, the most chilling tale of all came when Harmon took the stand to explain his murder method in the most graphic of detail. I never intended to hurt those youngsters, but I knew that if I got going, something would happen and that would make me cry. I would throw myself on top of those boys and bite through the Adam's apple, throttling them at the same time. Harmon explained the guilt he often felt at this point, regularly collapsing on the dead body and covering the face with a cloth so it wouldn't be looking at me. I'd make two cuts in the abdomen and put the intestines in a bucket, then soak up the blood and crush the bones until the shoulder broke. Now I could get the heart lungs and kidneys and chop them up and put them in my bucket. I'd take the flesh off the bones and put it in my wax cloth bag. It would take me five or six trips to take everything and throw it down the toilet or into the river. I always hated doing this, but I couldn't help it. My passion was so much stronger than the horror of the cutting and chopping. The skulls were smashed to pieces and thrown in the river or marsh, the clothes given away or sold. The more often this process occurred, the more efficient it became, and, whilst the city of Hanover utilized the meat and clothing of its victims, Fritz Harman remained out of the authorities' reach. Some boys he denied killing. For example, a boy named Hermann Wolf, whose photograph showed an ugly and ill-dressed youth. Harman declared that the boy was far too ugly to have interested him. 
the killer repeatedly claimed that he was driven by beauty and sensuality, not the cynical interpretation of sex or profit. In his eyes, it was easier to kill someone you loved. That way, you brought them peace. Often, after I'd killed, I pleaded to be put away in a military asylum, but not a madhouse. If Granz had really loved me, he would have been able to save me. Believe me, I'm not ill. It's only that I occasionally have funny turns. I want to be beheaded. It'll only take a moment. Then I'll be at peace. The experts then submitted their reports to the effect that, although the killer had a pathological personality, he had not been devoid of free will and responsibility, and therefore bore no manic depressive insanity. Brands and Harmon continued their petty squabbles throughout the summing up, their behavior towards each other remaining the same until the bitter end. At 10 a.m. on the 19th of December, 1924, Harmon received 24 death sentences in 24 cases, and Grand's one death sentence for his supposed incitement to murder in the Hannibal case. Upon announcement of the verdict, Harmon proclaimed, I want to be executed on the marketplace. On the tombstones must be put this inscription, Here lies mass murderer Harmon. The court acceded to neither request, and Harmon was duly decapitated within the walls of Hanover Prison. Brands's appeal was rejected, and the death sentence was pronounced correct and final. Yet, this story contains one final twist. A Hanover messenger named Loiters found a letter addressed to Albert Granz, father of the man under sentence of death, lying on the street. He made sure the letter was passed on to the addressee, who in turn passed it on to the court. The note was a four-page confession from Fritz Harmon, written whilst being taken by car to the police station. The letter summarized the relationship of Granz and himself and, most importantly, professed the innocence of the younger man. Hans Granz has been sentenced unjustly, and that's the fault of the police and also because I wanted revenge. Put yourself in Granz's position. He will question the existence of the Lord and justice just because of me. May Hans Granz forgive me for my revenge and humanity. The exact intention of this letter has never fully been understood. Was Harmon truly troubled by his conscience? Or was this simply a devious attempt to delay his own execution? It's now the common view of experts that the verdict of the Hanover case is an unsatisfactory one in the sense that Harmon was undoubtedly put under pressure by certain authorities throughout the trial. It was most probably the case that a neglected and innocent young man had been sentenced to death solely as a result of statements made by a man pronounced mentally ill by five different psychiatrists. In this sense, as said by Theodore Lessing, a commentator on the Harmon affair, a judicial murder was committed. Like his other victims, Fritz Harmon killed the one he loved, this time by using the German legal system as his weapon. After the two men's deaths, another letter from Harmon was found, this one explaining his actions purely as an attempt to take revenge against the police. The statement concludes, You won't kill me. I'll be back. Yes, I shall be amongst you for all eternity. And now you yourselves have also killed. You should know it. Hans Granz was innocent. Well, how's your conscience now? Friedrich Heinrich Karl Harmann was born the youngest of six children on October 25, 1879. His mother, 41 at the time of his birth, spoiled and pampered him as a child and encouraged young Fritz to play with dolls instead of more masculine games. Most crucial to the interests of a psychologist, Fritz disliked his father from an early age and was to continue this loathing throughout his life. 
The parents were indeed an ill-assorted couple. Old Harmon was a morose and cantankerous locomotive stoker who was to be found at night rampaging his way around the seedy bars of the old town. His wife, Joanna Claudius, was seven years his senior and provided him with a dowry of several houses and a small fortune, making him a wealthy citizen in this time of rapid economic expansion. Joanna was a simple-minded woman and managed to ignore her husband's continuous drunkenness and womanizing. The birth of her sixth child left her sick and she spent much of her remaining twelve years in bed. As for Harmon's siblings, the eldest son, Alfred, became a lower-middle-class factory foreman with upright Philistine and family values. The second son, Wilhelm, was sentenced at an early age and his three sisters, all of whom divorced their husbands early in married life, proved to be particularly obsessive and compulsive characters. Frau Rudiger was to meet a premature death in the Great War, and Harmon never got on with the fourth child, Frau Erfurt. It was therefore left to the youngest sister, Emma, to provide Fritz's sole family connection. From a young age, Harmon and his father argued and constantly threatened each other, the father to have his son put into an asylum, and Fritz to have his father thrown in jail for the supposed murder of a train driver. The only occasions of unity were exhibited when the men would combine to either carry out a swindle or to appear in court to exonerate the other. In contrast, Harmon always felt a deep bond with his mother, and she remained the only person he spoke of with warmth and sentimentality. The anecdotes relating to Harmon's childhood show two distinct traits. The first is the notable feminine, possibly transvestite, tendencies that were exhibited throughout his school life. The second is the pleasure in causing fear and horror. Harmon enjoyed tying up his sisters and regularly tapped on windows in the dead of the night, awakening the dormant fear of ghosts and werewolves. The child was spoiled and easily led, yet was lively and popular amongst his peers. The boy failed his locksmith apprenticeship and so was sent to the training school for non-commissioned officers at New Brissac in April 1895. Fritz was a good gymnast and an obedient soldier, but soon began suffering from periodic lapses in consciousness and epileptic fits. This was blamed on a concussion contracted whilst performing bar exercises or sunstroke suffered during the exercise. Harmon dismissed himself from the sick bay in November 1895, saying that he didn't like it there anymore, and soon began working for his father. Whilst Harmon's laziness and inefficiency continued, his sexual development was progressing rapidly. Offenses against children occurred almost every day, and it was not long before the accusations began mounting. Eventually and inevitably, the pervert was deemed incurably deranged by the town doctor, and was sent to an asylum shortly after his 18th birthday. It was here that the young man suffered some form of trauma that was to affect him for the rest of his life, and his intense fear of the asylum caused him later to say, Hang me, do anything you like to me, but don't take me back to the loony bin. Lackluster security soon allowed the patient to escape, however, and Harmon fled to Switzerland. At the age of just 20, he returned to Hanover, and in around 1900, achieved a sexually normal period when he seduced and married a pretty girl by the name of Erna Lowert. The engagement had the blessings of both sets of parents, who fervently hoped that the union would put an end to the young delinquent's reckless abandon. This was not to be the case, though, as Harmon soon deserted the girl and their unborn child for military service. He settled well into army life and, like the killer William Burke before him, became an excellent soldier full of obedience and esprit de corps. Harmon was later to refer to this time as 
the happiest of his life. A year went past with no incident until, in October 1901, Harmon collapsed during a company exercise and was admitted to the military hospital for four months. It was diagnosed that the soldier had a mental deficiency and was deemed unstable for use in community service. Once again, Fritz was sent back to his quarrelsome family and resumed his lifelong battle with his father. Old Harmon attempted to have him committed to an asylum, but the town doctor regarded him as merely morally inferior, and, at the ripe old age of 24, Fritz Harmon was released into society. Numerous burglaries and confidence scams soon became a feature of Harmon's life, and, after 1904, he spent one-third of the following 20 years either in custody or in prison. In 1914, he was sentenced to five years in jail for theft from a warehouse. Released in 1918, he joined a smuggling ring and conducted a prosperous business as a smuggler, thief, and police spy, the latter activity guaranteeing that his activities were not too closely scrutinized. For a man supposedly struggling with sanity, Harmon showed impressive signs of preparation and calculation in his crimes. The deviant offenses also continued, although he was rarely convicted of such misdemeanors, as the partners were too ashamed to report him to the police. Upon release from prison in April 1918, Armin surfaced briefly in Berlin and then again in Hanover. The murders soon began. Having analyzed the life of one of Germany's most depraved sons, it's now perhaps appropriate to ask ourselves what we have learned about the inner dimensions of a sex killer's mind. Even though it's long since been accepted that there's no single reason for serial crime, the same contributing factors rear their evil head in the case for nearly all killers of this type. Fritz Harmon is no exception and exhibits the same ugly traits as so many before and since. Little was known of the workings of a psychopath at the time of Harmon's murders, but the awareness and understanding of such crimes have now come a long way. Yet sex killers cannot be detected by their appearance domestic situations, or day-to-day -day behavior. Their sexual impulse is primarily a mental process and germinates within a secret, interior universe. Whilst the profilers are learning, as yet, it is only through bloody hindsight. Generally, serial sex murders are classified into three broad types. The biological killer, whose crimes are triggered by a physical defect or injury of some sort. The psychologically predisposed killer, usually stemming from an all-female or particularly traumatic childhood, and the sociological or maid killers. The traits of young Harmon previously noted bring us to the frightening conclusion that Fritz is a strong candidate for all three of the previous categories. The biological influence is evident if we consider Harmon's repeated head injuries and epileptic fits in his early adulthood. Indeed, a surprisingly large number of killers have had a history of head injuries in their youth. Whether the troublesome youngster was truly turning the corner at the training school, we shall never know. Yet it does remain a tragedy that an ordinary accident seemed to have put an end to an honorable attempt at obedience. As to the second category, the child was pampered and mollycoddled from a young age, and his features of feminism and sadistic pleasure are constantly repeated factors in the analysis of serial killers' childhoods. Harmon was inherently incapable of holding on to abstract ideas, any impressions he received had to become reality immediately. When talking about sexual matters, he would reach automatically for his genital area, even when being questioned in the courtroom. His upbringing developed a raw creature without logic and morals, yet also without logical and moral hypocrisy. The so-called maid killers, 
are those who feel that life has cheated them and owes them more. In his early years, Armin welcomed prison as confinement imposes structure on life and provides meaning and order to existence. A crucial sociological feature of the case, and one that's typical of the 20th century penal system, is that whenever Harmon was released from jail, both his craftiness and his crimes increased. Until the bitter end, Harmon pursued his rage against the machine. It was later admitted that he was beaten whilst under police interrogation, and his payback to Hans Granz was a perfectly executed attempt at embarrassing the authorities he so loathed. This idea of vengeance and atonement is, in Harmon's case, rooted in sadism and is a mask for sexual feeling. His actions toward his supposed friend, Hans Granz, were an act of revenge using the last remnants of power that the accused could exercise. Indeed, the relationship between Granz and his mentor is certainly one of the most fascinating aspects of the case. Granz understood the older man's wild, sick urges and realized that he could thereby ensure his own power and control over Harmon. Yet there was also a distinct gratitude and sympathy between the two. I had to have someone I meant everything to. Hans often laughed at me. Then I got mad and threw him out, but I always ran after and fetched him back. I couldn't help it. I was crazy about the boy. Harmon did love Granz, and Granz took advantage of it. He was the cleverer of the two, and thus continually toyed and jested with his companion. As irony would have it, he was to receive the harshest possible payback for his efforts at manipulating Harmon. Those who toy with the devil are sure to be burned. As a further scope for evaluation, the question of Harmon's sanity has never fully been resolved. Expert evaluation is entirely contrasting, although it is agreed that he was not ruled by the urge to torment others, but by the urge to kill at the height of his sexual desire. Psychoanalysts declare that the criminal differs from the man who adjusts himself to society and that he fails to sublimate the aggressive, primitive urges. The wounds inflicted upon him by injustice motivate these actions. There can be no doubt that Harmon suffered harshly in his early life, and in this way, he obtained the subject matter for an easy later rationalization. Harmon's psychological examiners at the time believed that he saw his execution as one final, intense orgasm, and the excitement of this possibility exceeded anything he'd experienced in his day-to-day -day life. He rejected the inhibitions that society attempts to place upon us and manipulated love and crime into a sexual game and comfortable semi-luxury. Harmon murdered for profit, both sexual and financial. And yet, whilst often racked with remorse, he never at any time in his life felt the burden of fear upon him. Fritz Harmon lived his entire life with the desire for his own destruction.